This episode of Light Source is brought to you by Squarespace.com. For fast, easy publishing of a professional website, check out photographers.squarespace.com slash ls. And when you sign up, use the promo code LS1 to receive a 10% discount. Thanks for visiting studiolighting.net. You're listening to Light Source. And welcome to episode 66 of Light Source, the official podcast of StudioLighting.net, a website introducing photographers to portrait and studio lighting equipment and techniques. I'm Bill Crawford, publisher. And I'm Ed Hidden, exclusive photographer with iStockphoto.com. On today's episode, we are going to answer some viewer questions. Uh, we're going to take a break from the normal interviews that we do. Uh, we've been getting quite a list of things that people have been asking us about, so we're going to get to some of those. And then at the end of the show, we will have a little brief conversation with Josh Kill, who has one of the coolest names for a website that's attached to his photography. It's called shootwithkill.com. No doubt. So... Probably the coolest memory device to have for a website. I, I thought edhidden.com was pretty easy, but I think Shoot With Quill has a, some better cool factor. Yeah, Josh volunteered to come on the show to tell us a little bit about how he uses Squarespace, the website tool that we've been talking about a little bit on the show and that, of course, we have a sponsorship with. So we'll throw that in at the end. Cool. Well, before we get into answering a few of the viewer questions, we have picked the winner of the hands competition. The contest ended in the beginning of June, and Bill, myself, and Ami Siano, the panel of judges, got together after the last episode. We each picked three of our favorite images, put them in an Excel spreadsheet, and had Excel pull a random number between one and nine. And our winner was, drumroll, Bradley Spitzer's image, Envy. It was the woman in a green shirt with tattoos uh, with a hand gently touching the TV. So Bradley will win. Yeah. We have a prize, too. Good job, Bradley. Cool? Yeah, this is a cool prize. I think he's going to be excited. You're going to get a case logic memory card case that says it holds about six camera cards. I've only got about four in mine, so you're going to get that, and you're also going to get the Seagate 4-gigabyte compact flash photo hard drive. And since you shoot with the D300, you're actually going to be able to use this. So awesome. I'll get this out in the mail to you, Bradley. And we're still going to be accepting submissions for the next one, which we said for June was going to be Emotion. So now that summer started, everyone should get outside and show their emotions. That's right. And thanks to everybody who took part in that last little round of photos. That was a lot of good work. Yeah, it was cool seeing some different work from everyone and actually shooting with a purpose. So no doubt. let's see if we can get more guys interested in emotion for June. So should we take some questions from our email? Yeah, let's do that. What do we got up first? Okay, so the first question that we got that I thought would be fun to talk about was from a student, actually, who's going to art school. And he said his photography class is mostly about the art of photography and not so much the technique. So his question was about mixing outdoor light with artificial light, taking outdoor portraits, and how the high-speed sync stuff works. Now, we've talked about this with a number of our guests, and also the very first digital photography one-on-one -on -one episode that was recorded by our friends at Snap Factory tackled this topic pretty well, I think. But I thought it would be still be fun to talk about on the show as well as a response to the email. Sure. Now, what would be your approach to this situation, Ed? So you're outside, you've got bright sun, and you want to take a portrait with artificial light as your either primary light or at least, you know, auxiliary light. 
Well, my first thing that I'm going to be looking at is setting up where I'm going to have the subject. If I'm outdoors and it's daylight, I'm probably going to be looking to put this person in some sort of relative shade. After that point, and I get my angle and everything set up, I'm probably going to be looking at my ambient exposure, what I want that background to do, whether I want that background to go underexposed or whether I want it to kind of be very close to relative to the subject and get something a little bit more natural. So if I'm going to be doing some sort of an underexposure, I'm probably going to be using my alien base or, or something with a little bit more output. So I would be measuring my ambient of the scene and adjust my shutter speed and exposure down to underexpose the image to get, you know, if I wanted to deepen the, the background and make it not so bright. And then at that point, after I introduce my key light or what's going to be my main light on my subject, I'm going to start using my light meter and I'm going to adjust my light to match what my main exposure is going to be. If I have my camera set up at f8 and I wanted the background to be underexposed to stop or so, and, and I measure my background at f5, 6, then I'm going to have my light at f8. So I'm going to be using that, that combination of adding more light to it to make sure that I'm not overexposing my highlight values and checking the histogram as well to make sure that nothing is completely blowing out. Is that similar to how you would do it, Bill? Yeah, it's similar. I think what I was thinking you could also do is start by deciding on the aperture for your shoot. You're going to say, all right, I'm going to shoot my subject at F8, and that's what I'm going to put my artificial light at so that I get proper exposure at F8. You would set your camera up that way, and then you could take an exposure in aperture priority mode or whatever, and you'll see what the camera thinks is the proper exposure for the scene of the background as well. And then you can use your shutter speed to adjust the ambient light. In other words, leaving the aperture the same and setting up your artificial light at that aperture setting is going to guarantee you decent subject exposure. So then what the shutter speed is doing is controlling the amount of ambient light that enters the exposure. So if you dial it down, the background will get darker. And if you dial it up, the background will get brighter comparatively to the normal exposure. The other thing that we should mention as well, depending on what camera system you have and what flash, etc., that you're going to be using, uh, you may need to use a setting. Canon refers to it as high-speed sync, and Nikon calls it the auto FP high-speed sync. Actually, that's a really good point. You need to keep in mind that everyone's camera has a maximum sync speed. And what that means is that if your curtains open and begin to close while the flash goes off, you'll actually get a black line across your image because the curtain began to close in the middle of the flash exposure. So you need to make sure that you shoot at or below your camera's maximum sync speed. Generally, it's around a 200th or 250th of a second, but you want to consult your user's manual for that. I've actually taken a couple of these images by mistake where it'll look like half of the image has flash on it and the other half of the image doesn't. Right. If your shutter speeds become too slow in the amount of ambient light you're allowing in, for example, if you're shooting in the evening or something and you want to drag the shutter or allow it to be open for a long amount of time and let the ambient light soak in, first of all, remember to tell your subject to be fairly still so you don't get blur from that. <laughs> But in addition, you can have your flash fire at the end of the shutter release, which is different in different camera models, but you can set it up so that the shutter goes all the, almost all the way through, and then it triggers the flash, and then you'll get that flash exposure at the end. 
And those are excellent images if you have some sort of a subject that has bright lights that's maybe moving across the image plane while the exposure is being done. One of the classic examples is like a, a street with a car light with using the rear curtain or second curtain synchronization of your camera. You're going to have a long trail of light from the headlights and then your flash is going to go off right at the end of that exposure. So you would see the light from the headlight as a streak from where the car had come, implying that the car is in a forward motion. If you use the first curtain sync, then it would kind of imply that the car is moving backwards because you would have the car in flash and then you would have the long streak of trail of light in front of it. And that would kind of signal to the brain that, hey, this isn't right here. The car's in reverse. That's a good point. There is one other thing to keep in mind when you mix the artificial light with the ambient light. It's kind of important to pay attention to the direction of the light. A lot of guys will actually put the artificial light coming from the same direction as the natural light so that it doesn't create conflicting light patterns or conflicting shadows on the subject. You know, you can kind of break that rule, but in general, with portraits and stuff, it might be a good idea to to kind of keep that in mind. So if the sun is at high camera left, then maybe that's where you start your light position for your artificial light as well. Yeah, some good advice. Well, we had a couple of other questions. Number two on the list I've actually worked with as recent as two days ago. Okay, what was that? Someone was asking about custom white balance. Yes. Well, that one made it on the list because we had a, a handful of different emails of people basically asking the same thing, and that's my images look funny when I use tungsten lights, they're too orange, or when I have fluorescent lighting, they have a green tint, and they're asking basically what is a question about custom white balance, because sometimes if you leave your camera in auto white balance, it doesn't get it quite right, or maybe you set it on the wrong white balance setting. So I thought it'd be good for us to to just lay out the basics of custom white balance. What's your approach to this? Well, my approach to white balance is I I can't even think of the last time that I stuck my camera on the auto white balance setting. It's just it's I think it's a bad thing to be there. And if you're if you're interested in taking a photograph, not just a snapshot, I think that's one of the first things that you should get in your mind or get ingrained into your mind is when you pick up your camera, look at your white balance setting and set it to whatever the scene is that you're going to be shooting at so that it's not changing. Exactly. One of the things that happens if you leave it on auto, you could just drift from one side of the room to the other and the white balance could change because the camera decides it's different. And then you're stuck with when you go into post-processing, trying to adjust a hundred images that are all completely different. It's, and it is so much easier if you're shooting, say a wedding, for instance, and you have everything inside at the reception at a single tungsten white balance or a flash white balance, if you're shooting mostly with flash and then when you get back to your computer and need a Lightroom or Bridge or whatever program you're using to select that entire group of images, get your exposure and everything set for the first one, and then synchronize those settings the whole way across the entire set makes it so much easier and cleaner and quicker to get pleasing images. Now, where I had used this this week was I was at a trade show and I was shooting in a room. It was a convention room. And it had a huge mercury vapor lights. And my camera doesn't have a mercury vapor symbol on the top <laughs> of it. And tungsten didn't quite look good. And fluorescent it looked kind of bad. And I've shot in this room previously. And it's I've had kind of blah results. And kind of trying to adjust it out afterwards has always been a chore. And things just never really looked correct or right. 
So I was in a pinch. I didn't have my calibration target or any of my little cool little special tools. I was kind of mobile and I was kind of shooting from the hip and really was, you know, I needed to get good stuff, but I didn't want to be lugging too much gear around all day. So I had a shot list of some things that I needed to capture and it was on, you know, standard eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It's not exactly color neutral. However, and that's probably the biggest thing when you're dealing with trying to set a custom white balance. And this is kind of what I got into doing here at the show. When you're shooting with a, a custom white balance, basically what you do is you shoot a reference image and that gets stored on your card. And then you go into your camera and you tell your camera to switch to the custom white balance setting. And then at that point, your camera is going to say, okay, this color neutral image that's on my card is for this lighting situation. And that's what it's going to neutralize the color against. All right. And for some cameras, before you go into the rest of the process, for some cameras, you actually have to take the image, tell it, hey, I'm about to take an image that's color neutral. And it waits for you. And then you take the image and it does the same thing, though. It says, "Okay, this is our white balance setting. Yeah, I I believe that's the way that the Nikon is with yours. And it actually will analyze it and say whether it was a good white balance test or whether it was a bad one and whether it can use it or not. But the Canon, the Canon, you just store the image on the card and then you go in and say, use this image, which is real quick tip that I've heard is really cool for the Canon users that are shooting weddings or whatever. If you have, if you have a little bit of time ahead of time to prepare and you have a good color target, you can go to each one of the areas that you're going to be shooting and shoot a color target and just store it on your card. And maybe you shoot a, a reference of like, okay, here's the reception hall. So you have that on the card. And then after it, you have a color target and then you have like the church and you shoot a picture of the church and then you shoot your color target. And you do that for every one of the rooms. So then when you go back to color processing, you have your, okay, this is this scene, and that's then that's the white balance setting for that scene. So you have all of these things kind of ganged up at the beginning of a shoot, so that way you can group them together afterwards and get your post-processing stuff together with that. So that's kind of a little tip that I'd heard before that I thought was pretty cool. Good idea. Yeah, and well, getting back to where I was, I didn't have my neutral color target to white balance against. So I was like, what am I going to do? So I had my shot list, eight and a half by 11 sheets. It's a little bit warm for color neutrality. So I basically put it out. So it was getting as much of an exposure from the ambient of the hall, basically what was going to be where the subject of the images was that I was shooting. I didn't want it in shadow. I wanted it fully exposed from the overhead lights. And then I took a picture of it. And then I used that as my white balance setting. And my color from that shoot looked better than any of the other years that I had been in there. Skin tones look pretty normal to what I remember it looking like from my eye. So that was a pretty good scenario to work with and something to use in a pinch if you don't have a custom white balance target, something that's completely color neutral or or a color chart or something like that. A white piece of paper will work in a pinch and it, it did a great job and would I say that it's like studio quality? No, it's not studio quality, but I was at a trade show and it's what I had and it worked for me. Now, the custom white balance target that you talked about is actually something that's probably really important for anybody who's really concerned with custom white balance. And the reason it is, is because it's actually a calibrated color. So it's pure white or, or pure gray or pure black or all three. And it gives your camera a an absolute reference. So depending, you, you would put this target out instead of your eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and use that as your reference card. And that way you have at least this calibration target as a reference point for your white balance in the field or in post-processing. 
for example, with Lightroom, you can choose that frame, that image, and you could say, all right, I'm going to set the white point and click on the white color and it adjusts it for the rest of your session. So those white balance target cards are very, very useful. And there are all kinds of different ones. I mean, there are targets that Expo Disc has one that actually goes on the front of the lens. And there's a, an old interview that we had with the makers of Expo Disc, and they talked in great detail. So, I mean, if you wanted to hear more about that, you can go back and listen to that previous show. We've also seen some color targets from the Ed Pierce guys, the, the PhotoVisions guys. They have one. Shoot Smarter has one. There A bunch of these guys are making these things that, that you can use. Aside from just having the color neutrality to them, Some of them will come through with a white, a gray, and a black. And those are good because you can also adjust your exposure to those images as well to kind of get an idea of if your exposure is targeted correctly for your camera as well. So you don't necessarily have to use your eyeballs to say whether you're over or underexposed. You can actually use like the, the gray values or the other color values that are on the card to kind of get an idea of that you're in the right ballpark. That's a great point. So bottom line is if you see strange color in your images, it's it's really time to start to get interested in custom white balance and give some of these techniques a try. And I'm willing to bet that some of that strange color cast will go away for you. One other little tip that I had picked up from Photoshop user TV, if you're beyond the point of custom white balance, let's say you are already at the stage of having a JPEG. And you can't do anything to to save that color. And let's say everything has a green cast or something that's a really strong cast of it. It really doesn't even matter what that cast is. There was a tip from, I believe it was Eddie Tapp. And he was talking about if you take that image in Photoshop, make a duplicate layer of it, go up to the filters menu and select blur average what it will do is it will average all of the color of the entire image and make the entire image a single color. And what that color is, is an average of what all of the colors are. So if you have a strong cast to your color, it's going to show you whatever that color is. So at that point, you could take and select all of the pixels on that layer, invert them, and set a color mode of apply color. At that point, you're going to have an extremely strong colored image that is completely opposite of what your color cast is at that point you can drop your layer opacity down to say 20 percent or somewhere in that range until you kind of play with it and get a feel for what is a normal color so that's another thing that you can do to remove a color cast if you're beyond the point of having a raw image and beyond the point of being able to select that color balance at that point so i mean that's 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 kind of a last ditch salvage technique that you could try as well that's pretty interesting. I'll have to give that a try. It's neat. I've done it a couple times and it's worked. When I have an image, maybe it's something that was given to me somewhere that somebody else shot or something that I needed to use or work with. And it's there's an obvious color cast to it, but I don't have the original and I can't do anything to it. So I found that one and I, I thought that was a really cool little step to do. And you can always build an action for it as well. And then you can just tweak it from there. So you can kind of turn it into a filter that's like a, a one-stop color neutrality filter if you wanted to. That's a great idea. Well, let's take one more question. And I thought this one would be fun to talk about. Uh, we had a reader who asked us that they were building a studio space and they were curious about what color to paint the walls. Uh, I think every wall should be a different color. Okay, and there's one opinion. <laughs> we had another reader a couple of days later who emailed us and asked how it is that sometimes you can change the color of your background. 
And I thought those are kind of related, and I thought we could at least talk a little bit about each of those. What do you think, Ed? Do you have some studio space? How did you decide what colors to make the walls? Um, I decided based on what color was there when I moved in. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the that's the what was done with mine. Uh, luckily, it was white. And my space where I have is, is a white space. And it's it's okay. And at least it's not something that has a color cast to it. Right. That when I bounce my lights into it, it's going to shift everything. Now, if I was going and painting everything, I would probably choose something that is a middle gray of, of an 18% grayer or something maybe even black. And I have thought about taking and getting some black cloth or something and putting like a track or something around my shooting area. So that way I can put something up that will deaden the lights bouncing around the room. And that's basically my drive for this at this point is that way my lights are going to be what is controlling what is falling on the subject and not anything that's spilling around the room. And if things are spilling around the room, then it's going to deaden the power of what is being reflected back onto the subject. Right. I mean, I really don't think that there's an absolute answer here. I think a lot of different photographers would speak differently, especially considering the different types of photography that you might be doing inside of your studio. For example, Mark Robert Halper might say that he loved white walls because he would probably use them as large light sources. Uh, (laughs) This is true. In other words, if you bounce your light off of a large white wall, then all of a sudden you have a giant white soft light source. But if you're doing low-key photography, for example, you're ha- trying to have a, a darker image, then you definitely don't want a whole lot of spill and, and blooming coming from the sides or anything. You're either going to have to mask those white walls or block your light from hitting them at all, which could cause some trouble depending on the size of the room. So I think it'll depend a little bit about on what you're shooting and how much light you're going to be throwing around in there. I like what you said, though, about the white not being too bad. The white works in my situation. It's not a bad choice. The biggest thing is that it doesn't introduce any odd colors that I have to worry about. If I did have something that I wouldn't have any control over that does have an odd color to it and I had to live with it, then I would be going back to using a custom white balance to kind of neutralize that odd bouncing color. Now, you also mentioned there was a question about changing a background color. Right. They were asking him how you would do that, how you would change the background color. Well, you, you would get a new roll of paper. There's one method. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounded from the roll. tone of the email that they were wondering if there was a type of background that you could have multiple colors applied, and they mentioned gels. We played with that down in the studio where we have a white piece of paper that we'll use as our background. We'll get white background paper, and we might hit it with a gel and, and color that background a little bit. Another mistake that gets made a lot of times when doing this is not having enough distance between your subject and your background. And what often happens is that the key light also hits the background and sometimes washes out that color. So the color is only going to show up in the shadows in that type of situation, which isn't always what you're after. So if you're trying to get a nice, clean, colored background, you want to keep your key light or any other light actually from hitting your background and just let that up to your background light. And also there's another technique that we should mention as well. If you're if you're one of those people that, that don't really know what they're going to be doing for a background or want the ability to change multiple backgrounds for your client, you could also shoot against a chroma key background. Now, there's two different types of chroma key. There's a chroma key green and a chroma key blue. And it's going to depend on what your subject is wearing 
as to which one of those two that you're going to use. Typically, chroma key green is about the most popular because it's about the most unnatural color that you can find. (laughs) And what you would do is you would evenly light that behind your subject. And then in Photoshop, you would be able to select that unnatural green color and easily mask it out. There's also chroma key filters that you can purchase if this is something that you're going to be doing on a regular basis. They're not cheap, but if if you're a portrait studio that's going to be relying on using digital backgrounds or digital color backgrounds or the ability to change those quickly, repeatedly, it might be a plugin that you want to be looking at getting. A couple of things to keep in mind in the chroma key world. First of all, we had a really great interview with Jerry Day where he spoke specifically about some great tips for chroma key lighting. So I'd recommend you check that out. And also his DVD is outstanding for that. But also, one of the big things that I think you want to keep in mind is keeping, again, your subject pretty far from the background because if any of that green light bounces off of the background and ends up on your subject, on their clothes or on their shoulders or their hair, then you may have a little bit of a masking issue when you try to take that color out. You you actually be taking out some of the clothing or some of the hair. And the other thing you also want to watch, too, is that you don't introduce your subject shadow onto the background or at least as little as possible because that would not completely drop out from your keying effect. That's a good point. So those are some different ways to deal with changing your background if you don't want to get a different roll of paper or get out your paint roller. Right. (laughs) Well, that's it for the listener questions and email that we wanted to tackle for this episode. Before we go, we wanted to take a few minutes to talk with Josh Kill, as we mentioned, who is a photographer recommended to us by Squarespace. Josh is one of the feature photographers. And when they first opened up their Squarespace for photographers, they were using his website as one of the featured sites. So it's kind of interesting to see what he's done with his portfolio. And he talks a little bit about how it is for him to build and use the Squarespace engine. So if you're curious about Squarespace or giving it a try and you really aren't quite sure about it, it's kind of fun to listen to what Josh has to say as he talks about his experience using it and things like that. On this edition of The Light Source, we have with us this evening Josh Kill. Uh, Josh has a great website with an even better domain name. It's uh, shootwithkill.com. I can't believe that one wasn't taken first <laughs> off. <laughs> so taking a look at the bio on Josh's website, uh, I think it's great. It, it's excellent. It says, uh, Kill Photography does not take pictures of dead things, nor does it promote, direct, or otherwise involve itself with killing. <laughs> That's just great. I love websites that have a little bit of a sense of humor about themselves. Thanks for coming on, Josh. Yeah, no problem. So now I see on your website that you're doing commercial work. Yes, yeah. kind of found my way into that. I'm actually um, located two hours outside of Seattle in a smaller town. You find your way to one photo shoot and then put it up online and it gets seen and somebody else asks you to do a little bit more. And before you know it, you have somewhat of a portfolio. And I guess I'm a commercial photographer and a a wedding photographer. It's great how networking works. Uh, Let's talk about gear for a few minutes. I also want to ask you about your web presence, but I'm just curious, what kind of lighting do you actually do? Do you do much location lighting and maybe at weddings? How do you handle that situation? Well, you know, I think coming out of the natural photography and and landscape work, you know, I really love available light. Um, I like using it in non-traditional ways. You know, it's been picked up more recently, shooting into the sun and, you know, breaking rules and finding cool things that happen when you break the rules. So the sun is my best light source. And then I'm a pretty hard strobist when it comes to off-camera lighting. 
I have a handful of cannon flashes and pocket wizards, and it's fun to set up scenarios. A lot of times at weddings, no matter what time of year it's at, you know, I'll pull them out at the reception at the very least. And also I found that it's great for when I don't have an assistant. I find myself using flash to fill because it's a lot easier to set up a little flash than it is to get a big reflector to stay still in the wind when there's even a slight breeze out. So. I'm really into problem solving. I, I would love to go out and forget my favorite piece of equipment and have to figure that out and stumble my way into some photos that I would have never thought of before. Uh, that sounds like a really good idea for an assignment is to, to forget your favorite piece of gear and go out and shoot. I might have to try yeah, that sometime yeah. here. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, especially on a, a high high pressure photo shoot or something, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about promoting your work a little bit. Now, your website, shootwithkill.com, is powered by squarespace.com, which is a sponsor of ours. You were featured as one of the featured photographer sites with Squarespace. Has that driven a lot of traffic to your site, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. There's been a lot of people, Squarespace being in New York, I've gotten a lot of requests from various small people over there that don't want to pay for me to fly out there, but... It's been interesting to, <laughs> to talk and get feedback on, on stuff. And I've got lots of Flickr friends now that I that I would have never had without that. So There you go. Now, did you always use Squarespace for your portfolio? No, I actually have only used it for, I guess, less than a year. I kind of just hand-coded sites, and I think I dabbled with some basic WordPress blogs to upload images into and some things like that. They were all kind of hodgepodge. Try to make it look halfway cohesive. Sounds pretty familiar, I think, to a lot of people. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, what made you switch over? Tell us a little bit about that transition and how it went for you. Well, as a photographer, um, at the time, I I was still heavy into photography, just full-time and nothing else. And, you know, I really didn't want to hassle with playing around too much online. I wanted it to look good and to be able to upload photos quickly and update my portfolio and have it all work. I wanted to be able to have my blog and my photo gallery and my information all under the same roof. Your site, shootwithkill.com, kind of reminds me a lot of some of the live book websites, which are very heavily targeted towards professional photographers. They can be pretty pricey accounts and stuff like that to get into. Is that what you were trying to model when you were doing yours, or did you just want to get big images in your portfolio? Or, I mean... What was your thinking when you went into designing this this way? You know, I really think that uh, a photographer's site should be uh, driven by the images. And I always really like when you go to a site and you can see the images right away and you don't have acres of thumbnails of various sizes to wade through and wait to load. And so that's why I kind of bypassed all that and throw you right into big images. I definitely love that about live books. You know, I was always impressed when I'd go to a site and there's these giant screen filling images that just popped up. And I definitely was drawn to that concept. Did you find it easy to customize Squarespace templates, or how did that part of it work for the design? Do you have this in your head going in? Yeah, you know, I actually, it's probably the the third iteration within about a two-month time span. As I got used to the Squarespace system, I'd go back and rethink it until I solidified this one probably six months ago. It's not too extremely complicated, so simple to edit and change and, and simple for people to view and not get lost. Now, you're a bit of a designer, too, so did you take advantage of some of the more custom styling then, I guess? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy about Squarespace is that it allows you to go in and 
kind of set everything up on autopilot right away and then get started. And then as you learn more, you can delve into some of the editors in, built in to change colors and styles and things. And then you can go beyond that to customizing the CSS code. And, and that's what I've really worked into is going in there and really just grabbing hold of all those elements and telling them exactly what to do. Um, I know a lot of people are getting started in web design, too, and dabbling when they can, but having a robust structure that's uh, automatically built for the areas that they don't know about yet. I guess what I'm kind of hearing you say is that if you are a designer, there's all kinds of control, and you can do an awful lot with it. This site, to me, didn't you know, it looks really custom, and I think it's great. But if you're not a designer, you can also kind of get rolling right away. If you're just, you know, yeah. and they've got some really attractive templates as well. Yeah. I know the new version of Squarespace is official now. They're building a whole suite of new templates, and, and I know that photography is going to be big on the list for designing templates that really look great and are easy to customize and make look different than everybody else's. There's going to be some really cool new features that even if you just use all the automatic features and ability to edit the templates, you'll be able to make sites that look really different from other people's just with those easy controls. So It's really cool. What about some of the features for tracking your visitors and being a designer and having dealt with traffic and all that in the past? What do you think of their analytics tools, their traffic and statistics features? Yeah, well, let me put on my web designer developer hat and um, <laughs> delve into that realm. The analytics features are, are terrible because they are updated like every minute. <laughs> and so I find myself sitting there and just watching it sometimes and refreshing the page and and seeing people visit. So in that sense, they're just terrible and make me spend too much time just watching. I really appreciate being able to see where people are coming from and, and what the effects of different changes that do on my site have on my rankings or on being found in different places, uh, being picked up on photo galleries or, you know, stumble upon, uh, digged and, and things like that. It's cool to keep track of all that in one place. Well, cool. Actually, before we wrap up, there's another website that you did some work with that is called Procreative, and that is, I'm guessing, something out of your local area? Yes, actually, Procreative uh, was an idea that a buddy of mine and myself had of uniting artists locally, whether they be photographers or web designers or painters or anything, just kind of pull people out of hiding. You know, we'd always see people's work in coffee shops or online and, and realize that there's all these people that live right around us that we've never met and that are in their own realms. We really are inspired by different types of artists and thought that we could all grow together if, if we met together and hung out. And most of the time, we just hang out and talk and share what each other's doing informally. It's been really fun. Cool. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, Josh, just based on your experience with Squarespace, would you recommend that to other photographers? And do you have any suggestions for people that are trying to get started? Sure. Yeah, I definitely would recommend it. I, I think that it's one of the best tools out there for photographers that have separate blog from their website now and are maybe looking for ways to establish a, a more comprehensive portfolio and, and blog site together. I, I think that the comprehension of Squarespace comes off oftentimes as just a blog site. It's a lot more than that, and I think my site kind of proves that. And, and as Squarespace focuses more on photographers, I think it's just going to get better and better. Very good. Well, thanks again. Well, that's all we have for this episode of LightSource, the brightest podcast on the internet.
Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other LightSource episodes at the website studiolighting.net. And you can also send us an email comment at studiolighting at gmail.com when you can send us comments, questions, or just images that you'd like us to see. And if you really want to get involved with some of the other listeners to the show, you can head over to the LightSource Flickr group at www.flickr.com slash groups slash LightSource. You can post your images and get feedback on your photography as well as seeing the things that we're taking pictures of. And as always, if you missed any of these links, our quick outro here, you can find all of that and more at www.studiolighting.net. Till next time. Bye-bye. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. Photocastnetwork.com.